Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to look today at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the 12th through the 15th verses. And... Uh, Mark, as we know, is very concise and very much to the point. There's a great deal more detail about events in Matthew and in Luke than there is in Mark. But it is the very brevity of Mark that gives us the opportunity maybe to reflect more deeply on some of the things that he says. And so basically it begins, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness and he remained there for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels looked after him. This is a pretty dramatic statement, that Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, and there's wild beasts around him, and he is tempted by Satan. What are we to make of all this? If this was one of the other Gospels, we would find a great deal probably of detail involved. In fact, as in the temptations in the desert, we do find a great deal of detail in the other Gospels, but not here in Mark. First of all, there is an emphasis on the fact that Jesus didn't decide himself that, you know, he was going out into the desert, that he was driven, it said, by the Spirit. And he's there for 40 days. Anytime you have the 40 days in the Gospel, it usually is some kind of uh, oblique reference to the 40 years of Israel in the desert. And when Israel was in the desert for 40 years, we know that they went through multiple trials and that they had multiple failures as a people. The, the most graphic and the most dramatic is when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And as he receives the Ten Commandments from the Lord, down in the valley below, Aaron actually um, the high priest is gathering with the people of Israel who are saying, oh, well, he's been gone for all this time. He's probably dead. Um, you know, we're going to have to take care of ourselves. And so they create the golden calf. They begin then to worship the golden calf, to dance around the golden calf, or, and, and say to this piece of metal, you know, you are the God that led us out of Egypt and so forth. So the 40 days of Israel in the desert was in many ways 40 days of failure. There was not only the golden calf, there was the complaining about water, there was the complaining about meat, there was the complaining about the Egyptians pursuing them in the beginning. They were so obdurate within the desert that it, it caused Moses to, to lose his temper at the rock of Meribah, at Massa in the desert. And, uh, and in doing so, to in anger strike out in fulfillment of what God asked him to do. And God, because of his anger, which showed his lack of trust and confidence, blocked him from entering the, the promised land. So there was just one, dis break, one disaster after another in the desert for 40 years. For 40 days, Jesus is now going into the desert, and he's going to endure the same kind of temptations. He's going to endure hunger. He's going to endure thirst. He's going to uh, endure kind of the, 
the 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 minimalist reality of his of humanity itself the restricted meaning of humanity itself the kind of encasement that the divine was going to experience being locked up within a very limited human body and so forth all of these things and we know what the temptations were to turn a rock to do something spectacular turn a rock into bread throw yourself off the pyramid the pinnacle of the temple um, fall down and worship Satan, and then you can have all these things that you want and all of this. The very same temptations, actually, that Israel experienced in the desert. They, they wanted spectacular things, so they got a few spectacular things. They got manna, and they got the quail that came and covered the ground for their meat. They got some spectacular things, the parting of the Red Sea. They also were upset because they were migrants, because they were itinerants in the desert, because they were nomads. They were promised somehow or other they would be promised a great kingdom, and here they were nothing, and so forth. The idea is clear. Israel experienced all these very human basic tendencies and temptations within the desert, and more, than, more often than not succumbed to those temptations. Jesus now is going for the symbolic 40 days, and we're going to see in the other Gospels that he overcomes the temptations. But there's something else here, too, that is, that is, that is interesting. One of them was into the wilderness, into the desert. And we saw before that this is kind of a definitive place in the scriptures. For instance, if you go to Jericho, which is at the edge of the desert, what you find is that that you can see actually the caves and so forth where Jesus was at his temptations in the desert. So he's in the right place. And we saw it when we talked about John the Baptist. We saw how clear it was that the Baptist went into the desert, out of probably out of Qumran, because that was what people did when they wanted to begin, when they, when they wanted to encounter God, when they wanted to overcome the darkness of this world that they would go to this particular place, which was the wilderness, which was harsh. It's so harsh here in, in Mark's gospel, it even says that it was surrounded by wild beasts. And it was there in these personal struggles. I don't, it, it's an interesting thing for, for any human person to go into solitude, to go into isolation and find out, you know, what what's inside of you and what's around you you experience all the all the darkness of your nature but you can also then experience the light of the goodness of the god that is around you for there is nothing else to distract you from that and we know for instance people in great solitary confinement um, even in prison, often they either go mad or they come out some kind of uh, some kind of great and insightful person. Um, Andrew Solz Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for instance, in, in his isolation in the Gulag, and yet he comes out with this magnificent insight into reality. John of the Cross, who is in prison in a in a six by six cell with with no ventilation for six months by himself, and what happens is that he writes the spiritual canticle. He he sees he sees into the depths of the mystery of the divine, for it is that which is greater than his cell, and that which is able therefore to give perspective and understanding to the limitedness of human nature. If we want to understand how limited our nature is, then go into a room and close the door by ourselves for some kind of long period of time 
and you begin to understand the limitations of life. But you also begin then, if you are a John of the Cross or if you are one of the great spirits who goes into these, you come out with a vast understanding of reality and a vast vision of the, of the presence of goodness, the presence of God as it could be in the world. And so for 40 days, Jesus then goes into this. He fulfills the human task of becoming, in fact, totally who he was, who he was intended to be in his incarnation, in his assuming of the human flesh. For there in the desert, he is encountered by all of the temptations of the flesh. And there in the desert also, he comes to know even in a more deeply way, his humanity comes to know in a more deeply way, the divinity of the Father. And so, and also there is another image here from the first book of Kings, from the story of Elijah. If you remember in the story of Elijah, when he, he slew the 400 prophets of Baal, Ahab goes back and tells his wife Jezebel, who was a worshiper of Baal, goes back and tells her what happened, and she sends a message to Elijah saying, you know, may God do thus and so to me if by, you know, tomorrow at this time you're not like one of those whom you killed. And so he gets afraid, he runs into the desert. And in the desert then, he is surrounded by the wildness of nature, and the Lord takes mercy on him, and the Lord guides him, and the angels of the Lord look after him. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels looked after him. And the reason that they want to make this allusion now, Mark wants to make this allusion now, to the prophet Elijah, is because this very short story, this is two sentences, which the other Gospels take several, take paragraphs to describe. But in that is compacted all of this, the whole experience of the desert, the wilderness, the whole image of the 40 days as being an image of the 40 years of Israel, the temptations by Satan, which expresses the, the, the triumph of the humanity of Jesus over the powers of darkness, and then to associate him with the great prophet Elijah, because then where Mark is going next is into the prophetic mission of Jesus. He has already then, Mark has already in some ways established Jesus's, I suppose we could say, credentials by comparing his experience of life with the experience of life of Elijah. And so then the gospel goes on, as is after John had been arrested. So Jesus now knows how difficult and how precarious this mission of his is going to be. He is succeeding John as a prophet. And in succeeding John as a prophet, he sees where John's prophecy, gift of prophecy, led him into prison. Jesus has already learned not to be afraid of that. He learned that in the wilderness. He learned that in the desert. His humanity began to catch up with his divinity, we might say, in the desert. And in so doing then began to understand the precariousness and the danger of what he was about to undertake. But showing his total indifference to the danger that he was about to undertake, he then proclaimed the good news from God. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
He therefore begins knowing, first of all, the viciousness of the, the vileness and the, and the power of the temptations. He knows the consequences of authentic prophecy. He's seen Elijah be driven into the desert for, by fear because Jezebel is trying to kill him. He sees John the Baptist hauled off to prison by Herod for proclaiming the truth, for speaking prophetically that which is of God's mind, his authenticity, his authority. And so once coming out of the desert then, his humanity is emboldened to take on both the risks and the dangers of Elijah and of the Baptist. And he does so by proclaiming to the people exactly what the Baptist proclaimed to them. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. We find then, interestingly enough, and we've been looking at this, and it's developed pretty much, pretty extensively in the Gospel of St. Mark, what we find is once again the emergence of the image of the Messiah from this short Gospel. Jesus overcomes the power of evil. He resists the temptations of Satan. And in the end, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written that you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Satan then flees, and the Lord is triumphant over the powers of darkness. He no longer need fear them because he has already faced them and overcome them. John the Baptist is yet to learn the whole human lesson that Jesus has learned in the desert. But Jesus now can do so without fear. And so there is a certain defiance in his proclamation. Defiance is fine. You put John in prison, we'll hear his message, and his message is going to continue, and his message is going to live. The voice of proper prophecy is going to continue in the world, and it's going to continue among the people whom God, to whom God has given faith. No amount of persecution, no amount of force is going to be able to silence the voice of prophecy. The second thing then, to, in order to be an effective prophet, he therefore has to be able to clear the way for prophecy. And one of the ways to clear the way of prophecy in a human sort of way is to lose all fear of its consequences. You know the severe consequences of some of the things that you say or do in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of our faith, that there are consequences to that. How many times do you hear people say, I had the opportunity to defend the faith and I really didn't because you know, I, it would have been socially awkward, I would have lost some friends, I would have alienated someone. In other words, I saw the consequences of speaking the truth, and I realized that those consequences were something I did not want in my life. And so I avoided, at the time, the witness that perhaps I had the opportunity to give. That doesn't mean that you, in every social situation, you know, destroy the party by, by stating your opinion on things. But when, in fact, the church is challenged, when, in fact, truth is challenged, even, even a quiet and a mild voice of, of dissent can be very, very powerful. And yet, there's consequences to doing that. And many people, many people, are very hesitant to suffer those consequences. So the first thing, then, that Jesus does in his humanity is to lose the fear of being a prophet. And this is right at the very beginning of his public ministry. He goes out from here and then continues his public ministry, continues the preaching, continues the healing, and so forth. And we saw him very recently, we saw him healing Peter's mother-in-law, and then we saw him 
healing a leper. And then we, we heard him impose the messianic secret, which was ignored. And so we see him suffering in some ways the consequence for the truth of who he is. And yet he continues on and he does not flinch and it is not something he is afraid of. Then what does he say? What is it that he has to be afraid of? Well, it's a word repent, to proclaim the word repent. Now think about that. Think about the implications of that, especially in a scriptural sense when repent comes in a way from, uh, from a, a word metamorpho, which means to change inside of the self. In other words, be transformed internally. People become comfortable with who they are. And if you stop and, and you, you look at human behavior and you hear people say, well, you know, that's just the way I am. There's nothing I can do about it. And uh, of course, there's always something they can do about it, but they don't want to do it. And so if someone tells, well, too bad if you don't want to, you know, you really have to, that that creates a very negative reaction, a very negative reaction. People interpret it as, well, you're rejecting me as a person. Well, no, I'm not rejecting you as a person. I'm rejecting a quality that you have developed as a person, which you would be a better person if you would let that quality disappear in your life. But sometimes we get so used to our faults that we don't know who we are without them. And when someone says that, repent, change inside of yourself, then basically they're, they're challenging you to let go and become another kind of a person that you don't know if you're comfortable with. You don't know if you can live with that other person. You don't want to get rid of things. This is absolutely graphically displayed in relationship to addictions. Um, I know that there's a psychological component to addiction, and I know that there's oftentimes a physical opponent, uh, component of addiction. But at the same time, there is always that modicum of freedom within the human person, which can allow them to come to grips with the addiction. Maybe not to overcome it themselves, but at least to reach out for assistance or for help to change it. But many, many do not. They prefer to live in their drug addiction. They prefer to live in their alcohol addiction. They prefer to live in their food addiction. They prefer to live in their pornography addictions. They prefer to live in all of those. And, and they prefer to do so because I don't know who I am if I'm not this. And I have become as uncomfortable as I am, more comfortable with being who I know who I am than becoming somebody that I'm not sure of who I will be. And that sounds very convoluted, but put it together and it does make sense. This idea of clinging to ourselves and to that which in us, within us, which we should let go of, because we're not sure who we are if that element is not there. And I think that we can trace an awful lot of addictions to that unwillingness to not be who I know myself to be at this moment in my life. 
And that's exactly what the prophecy of John the Baptist and the prophecy of Jesus, this is why there's such a reaction to it. You know, we can, we can talk about conversion and we think of it as kind of a gentle movement in the heart. Sometimes it's not a gentle movement in the heart. Sometimes it's a violent disruption in my life. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, as John said, do it. Just go ahead and do it anyway and trust in the Lord that what happens will be better for you than what is. But how many people have that kind of trust in the Lord? How many people can do that? Jesus knows that this will create a terrific backlash. And we see that backlash all through the Gospels. Will the Pharisees and the scribes listen to him? Will they repent their lives? Will they give up their security? Will they give up their positions of power? Will they get up their uh, control over other people's lives? For the sake of a deeper relationship with the Lord? No, they will not. And, in, and, and Caiaphas, the high priest, even says, you know, rather than do that, it's better, it's better that one person die than that we have to go through that change. It's better that one person die. And that was the ultimate condemnation of Jesus to crucifixion when he handed him over to Pilate, making it very clear that the cry of the crowd, the assembled crowd, the, the artificial crowd, was crucify him, crucify him. So yeah, the reaction against authentic prophecy is ferocious. Think, we said before, that prophecy has moved from the Old Covenant through John the Baptist into the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and from the life of Jesus of Nazareth into the magisterial authority of the church. So that when the church speaks authoritatively and authentically what it has received from the Holy Spirit, it speaks with a prophetic voice. How many people hear the prophetic voice of the church? And how many of them say, I don't believe that. I don't want to do that. That's too hard. I, do, I, I will not keep this child, you know? I, I will not keep on living when I have the option to, for someone, for a doctor to kill me um, and, and call it euthanasia. I, and all of those kinds of things. I want to choose, I want to choose what, and, and probably, you know, it, it's a charming song, and and um, and people think it's great. But think what it means when we sing, when we hear Frank Sinatra's song. You know, I did it my way. I think it would be so much better for us as we come closer to the ends of our own lives to say, I did it God's way, because there then we would have listened. We would have listened to the call for repentance. We would have allowed the evil to be purged from within ourselves through the sacramental grace of confession and Eucharist. We would have listened to the word of God, to the prophetic voice of the Lord spoken to us from the church, and we would have amended our lives and moved away from those things which rot the soul, but which are very dear to us in the day-to-day -day progress of our lives. If we would only be able then to trust God enough, because that's what it takes to repent. We can't repent because I've hit this feel-good moment. We can't repent because at this very moment I have been confronted with my weaknesses and my faults, and so now I'm just going to change. 
but I'm not really going to change. I'm just going to say I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to change within my heart that kills the desire to do that. It has to be a pretty traumatic confrontation with the evil within us for a person to allow their hearts to be changed by the grace of God. And so that's basically what has happened. Jesus has lost the fear of prophecy by overcoming the powers of evil, which is his messianic mission. In overcoming the powers of evil, the temptations of Satan, he has then moved out of the desert and picked up where John the Baptist left off with the prophecy calling for a metamorphosis, for a change deep within the human heart, deep within the human spirit. Repent. And why should you repent? It is the implication being for the, the kingdom of God is close at hand. Who do you want to be when you face God? Who do you want? What kind of life do you want within you when God comes to draw you to your ultimate choice? Not his, his final judgment, but his final judgment is the acceptance of your ultimate choice in life. When we have chosen the good, when we have chosen the Lord, the Lord will take us to our eternal reward, cleanse us of what cleansing is left is necessary, but ultimately into his kingdom. If we have chosen and say, I want no part of your kingdom, I am so much more comfortable with my faults and my sins than I ever would be if you would take them away, that I therefore choose to live with them for all eternity. And that is called choosing hell choosing damnation. I will not change. I will not be anyone except the person that I have decided I wanted to be, even when it is filled with flaws, with faults, with sin, and oftentimes with evil. So as we reflect upon this gospel, and as we begin our Lenten journey, let us think about this. Let us ask the Lord to guide us into a deeper understanding of what repentance means in our life, and then to give us the means that we need in order for us to have the courage to no longer be afraid, to have courage to step out of ourselves into a life of grace and allow the Lord then through his love to transform us into those who are capable and desirous of choosing him for all eternity. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.